Chris, what was the most dad thing you did this week? <laughs> hmm. Um, well, that would, that would definitely have to be the best diaper change I've had as a father in the last, uh, two and a mm. half months. I don't know what it is as a dad. You just get this extra confidence that nothing is ever going to go wrong. Hmm? You know, like everything's going fine. I'm an expert. I'm an expert at this now. There's, there's definitely not going to be any error that I commit that's going to leave me covered in poop. But unfortunately, that happened to me this week. No, dear. So I, yeah, I was doing a diaper change and, um, you know, just to, just to pee, nothing, nothing major. And so in that brief moment, you think, okay, in a 24-hour period, how much of the time does she spend pooping? You know, probably like, like a couple of minutes, right? And so you think, okay, I can pick her up, right? She's crying. I can pick her up. I can console her without a diaper on for two seconds. That, that shouldn't result in catastrophe. I think we would all agree. Um, so naturally, you hold her up and you tell her how much you love her. She's the apple of your eye. And you're just so happy that she's with you here in the world. And then she defecates all over your chest, <laughs> dripping down your shoes. Um, and you stand there and you think, oh, oh, so this is what fatherhood is. <laughs> this is why this is why we do what we do for moments <laughs> like these. It's a ringing endorsement, you know, it's, uh, you know, people people say it must be so magical to be a father and. You think it is. I mean, it is. It is magical. I tell people it's magical. But if I had to pick a moment to show why it's magical, that probably wouldn't be the one that I'd go Or would with. it be? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, my dad thing that I did this week um, was more of the, like, becoming your dad or doing the, the dad thing, which was mm. Um, mm. Uh, living in New York. We get a lot of snow. So here I am. Uh, um, with my long johns tucked into my socks, my t-shirt tucked into my underwear. And as I'm tucking my sweatshirt into my pants, my wife looks at me and goes like, what are you doing? And I just, <laughs> and I just pat my gut emphatically with both hands as dads tend to do. Cause you know, I went from yeah. a six pack to a keg and just go layers, baby. <laughs> And she looks at me with this just like look of just sheer disappointment. And I'm just like, oh, there, there it is. Yep, that's me. And I'm just mm. like, every possible thing is tucked into the next possible thing. And I'm just like, layers, baby. And I can't just like, get out uh, the yep. image of you. I can't get out of my head the image of you coming back in from snow blowing, you know, caked in snow. And you just think, ah, a crisp newspaper. And you lean back in your chair, leg over the knee, slippers on. Got to have the slippers oh, on. Absolutely. <laughs> and you just over the top of the newspaper. Oh, huh. The Bills don't have a defensive end this week. Huh. But with the emphatic like shake of the newspaper, right? Like, you know, you like <laughs> shake it out and to, you know, to make sure that it's, you know, like you said, crisp or whatever, as I'm folding it over to do the crossword. Any uh, conversations with anybody at the end of the driveway, you know, elbows, elbows over the top of the shovel, talking about how cold it's going to be this week. Doing the Ken Dryden, as it were. Yeah. Over top no. of the, over top of the oh, shovel. Oh my God. I didn't wake up today thinking someone was going to make a Ken Dryden reference. And here we are. And it's my friend in America who makes it. Good Lord. I, I say, I don't even know if that would translate in the United States. But, yeah, uh, yeah. How many people would you need to talk to? until somebody got the Ken Dryden reference. Oh, very many. Because I feel like that's a very Leafs thing. Like, you know, Ken Dryden with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, I feel like that's a, 
Well, Habs, I don't know if that's a Habs, but... oh, that's true. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know if that really trans would translate to hockey fans in general. Yeah, um, yeah, necessarily. Yeah. Um, but you never know. Totally. Um, he yeah. became a senator, like not an Ottawa senator, like a Canadian senator, didn't he? Or like a, I think he, he was, was a in member of parliament. He was something. in a member of parliament sometime. I couldn't actually tell you how, um, what specifically, but yeah, he definitely did. Is he Order of Canada as well? He must be. I, mean, I feel like he goodness. has to be, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just guessing because I feel like any any Canadian hockey lore, I feel like just gets the Order of Canada. Like, I feel like that's just part of, <laughs> right, you know, right. that's our Presidential Medal of Freedom, right? It's just... I'm pretty sure Wayne Gretzky players. is like king or crown prince of Ontario. Yeah, supreme like ruler. Or yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Granted a serfdom. All right. Well, uh, do you want to do you want to get this started, Kristen? Yeah, you ready? Yeah, let's Alrighty. do this. Let's load it up. Welcome, everybody, to the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris, and I'm here with Christian, and we're here for another week of talking to you about dadhood. Uh, We'd like to offer some thanks at the start, as we always do. Thanks to you, the listeners, for listening, but uh, in particular, thank you to Michael Spicer for that wonderful intro music, Michael Spicer Music, check him out, as well as Vishal Murthy, the vet cartoonist. Uh, really, really wonderful. Uh, our producer, Ryan, we literally could not do this without you. And of course, our wives and families for making this all possible. So this week, we have a few topics that we're going to talk about. We're, um, we don't want to spoil it, but uh, we're just going to dive right into the first topic, Christian. So um, <clears throat> one, uh, one thing that we dealt with while we were in those first few days in the hospital was a topic that I think a lot of us have heard of before. Um, but maybe some listeners don't know exactly what it is. I think probably a lot of dads out there don't necessarily know what it is. And that is, uh, the topic of jaundice. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say jaundice, Christian? I mean, you're a doctor, so I'm going to guess yes. But if you can, uh, maybe give me a, a brief rundown of what that, what that word means. Well, I guess I should specify, uh, are we talking about human or animal jaundice? Cause I think the answer <laughs> might be slightly different. It's an extremely relevant question, actually. Which is actually going to be probably part of the topic. So, yeah, I mean, for, literally, I mean, for the last thirty years of our lives, we've called ourselves dog dads. So, I mean, we we really are. When I say first and foremost, dadhood, we are talking about just our our overall dadhood towards our child and animals. But in this case, I mean your daughter. Um, uh, yes. Well, I I, I do know. Um, so. Obviously, we're talking about this because both of our daughters were, in fact, jaundice um, at birth. Um, and I do I do know it is as a result of, um, you know, an increase of uh, bilirubin in the bloodstream. And that's mostly because of um, the rapid breakdown of red blood cells that they go through in their early stages of life um, and their liver just not being as uh, developed enough to, to keep track. Bang um, on the money. So then, this is a they keep going. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this is a normal physiologic response in infants. It is not unusual and it does not, in, its, in itself, the existence of jaundice does not necessarily mean that something abnormal is happening. And that's a really important concept to understand. It is a natural consequence of a normal process that's already ongoing. 
<clears throat> so what happens is, um, you know, we carry blood around our body in the form of red blood cells. Red blood cells contains hemoglobin. Hemoglobin contains bilirubin molecules. Red blood cells have a lifespan. A red blood cell in your body doesn't live forever. And after a certain period of time, that red blood cell breaks down. And that hemoglobin has to go somewhere and the bilirubin has to go somewhere. So little bilirubin molecules, which are not in themselves toxic at a low level, go to your liver where they are then conjugated and, and excreted. So they go into the bile ducts, mm -hmm. into the gallbladder, the gallbladder squeezes, it goes through the common bile duct into the small intestine, you get rid of your bilirubin. You should always have a little bit of bilirubin in your bloodstream. If I took your blood sample right now, if I took my daughter's blood sample right now, if I took my cat's blood sample right now, there would be some bilirubin present. Um, and so what happens is you can imagine that if you're either pouring more into the start of the system or you have a smaller hose at the end of your system, you're going to end up with more bilirubin than normal. And in this particular case, what happens in infants is it's a matter of the hose being too small. That is to say the liver is not developed enough to remove a sufficient amount of the bilirubin and so it climbs up slightly. And if it climbs up only a little bit, that's not a problem. But if it climbs up very high, which it can do for a certain number of reasons, then what happens is the bilirubin can be toxic to brain cells, and that's called acute encephalopathy, and that can eventually result in some permanent damage, which, which sounds very scary, but I have to emphasize to anybody listening that it has to happen at a very, very high level. And so some of the things that can cause it to go up particularly high would be, say you're born premature, your liver hasn't fully developed yet. And so you have a smaller liver when you're premature, so you have less functional capacity, you have more bilirubin in your bloodstream. So a premature infant is going to have a much higher level of bilirubin compared to a at-term infant, for example. Another thing would be more breakdown of red blood cells. So for example, if your blood type is different from your mother's blood type, then she may, in some specific cases, have antibodies that then attack your red blood cells, results in a greater breakdown of those red blood cells, more bilirubin in the bloodstream. And that happens, as you know, really commonly in horses, where it's a really big problem. So uh, that's enough kind of science-y talk for now, but the reason that we're talking about it is that uh, this is something that both Christian and I went through with our daughters. Uh, it's something that apparently, my mom says I was jaundiced when I was a kid, it's a very, very common thing. And so I think for a lot of dads listening, <clears throat> or moms listening, uh, this would be something that they've probably heard at the hospital and don't know how much worry to put into it. So I guess uh, I'll ask you first, Christian, before I tell like kind of what we went through. Um, <clears throat> when did you first know that she was jaundiced? And to what extent did they say it was a concern? Um, yeah, let's start there. When, when did they tell you and how concerned were you and how, how much concern did they convey to you about this? Um, well, I'll, I'll first off by saying that both my brother and I were both jaundiced. Um, mm, and it's, you mentioned the um, different blood types. Um, so my mom was a different blood type than my brother and I. Um, and so she had to, we had to worry about, like you mentioned, the different blood types and um, the increased breakdown. My brother was also five weeks premature. Um, so um, he so was two different factors. Right. So he was, he was quite jaundiced, um, never to any uh, dangerous level. Uh, or anything like that. But uh, they did stay in the hospital for, I think, almost a week, actually, more so for his premature status. But anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. um, we, 
noticed it uh, actually ourselves, believe it or not. Um, my wife hmm. and I are both veterinarians. Um, so we actually noticed it ourselves. Um, but it probably wasn't until maybe 24 hours hmm. um, after she was born. Um, my daughter was born fairly early in the morning. Um, and so after kind of, you know, almost 24 hours of labor, um, I think rest was what we did first and then kind of, you know, uh, went from there. So, um, the nurse came in and, uh, kind of mentioned it and mentioned it very nonchalantly. Mm. Um, and, uh, you mentioned your first question was how much like stress or worry did they put into it? And the answer is virtually none good yeah and um because they like you mentioned they were like yeah this is something that happens all the time it's more something we monitor she's not at a dangerous level at all um you know this that and the other thing um you know we're gonna take a quick reading um and um you know then we'll basically measure it tomorrow and see where she is um so that's kind of the extent of it they did do they did not explain it to us at all um Mm. to be honest with you um, it was one of those things that I feel like they just talked about as if like everybody just knew it was a thing that happened. Um, right. And, and do so, you think any of that had to do with the fact that they, that you were veterinarians? Do you think they treated you differently or talked to you differently as, as a result of that? I don't think they actually knew that we were veterinarians. Um, and mm-hmm. by that, I mean the people in the labor and delivery floor knew that because we were there for almost a whole day with the entire team but this was when we got moved up to the uh, mother and child floor, which is the kind of postpartum kind of, you know, monitoring um, that type of space. Um, and so I don't, to be honest with you, full disclosure, I don't actually think they knew we were veterinarians at that point. Um, I could be wrong, uh, but um, but I don't think they actually knew that, to be honest with you. Um, and the funny thing is, is that you mentioned that is a a very normal process that happens with infants. Um, But as veterinarians, we don't really ever see, or I should say we rarely see um, neonates or, Mm. um, you know, that type of thing. Because most of the time, you know, you're rescuing a dog from a shelter or even if it comes from a breeder per se, as a veterinarian, I'm typically not getting them until they're like eight weeks of age. Right. And so we don't really see that that often. And so most icterus or jaundice um, in animals is typically pathologic, right? Um, in some cases, by the time I get a dog that's jaundice, it's because something's, you know, something's happening and it's not good. Um, and so it's yeah. it's an interesting dichotomy that way. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. I think, you know, certainly one of the reasons being that in humans, <clears throat> we detect subtle disease much more quickly and particularly for something like jaundice. So I should mention uh, to, to listeners, jaundice, of course, comes from the word jaune, which is French for yellow. Pardon and your that's French. Why, so <laughs> um, this, this is where we insert the, the dad joke sound, right? We'll work on um, that. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, yeah, so in uh, in humans, we um, we see it we because we detect the subtle yellowing of the skin. Bilirubin is a is a pigment. I mean, it's extremely yellow. You can paint with it, but at a very subtle level, you can see it on your skin perhaps a bit more readily than you can than than a, an owner might notice in their dog at home. 
Um, if anyone's curious at home, the place where you can detect it the easiest is the whites of the eyes, uh, or what you call the sclera. That, that turns yellow really quickly. And of course, because that's a white part of the body, you can usually tell um, very, very easily. But yeah, I agree with you, Christian. You know, um, jaundice or what's otherwise called icterus or hyperbilirubinemia is uh, is a process that we generally only see in animals dogs and cats in a in a few very specific and generally speaking uh, critical processes, um, you know, acute and sudden breakdown of large amounts of red blood cells because of autoimmune disease or certain toxins. Interestingly, you know, when you've, you've probably heard not to feed your dog onions, and one of the reasons is that it causes uh, a, a massive amount of red blood cell breakdown and hyperbilirubinemia. So onions can cause a yellow dog for whatever that's worth. But some of the other big ones would be an obstruction of the biliary tract. So in humans, that happens a lot gall stones, really, gallbladder stones, but we detect it so subtly because, you know, hey, I'm really, my abdomen is extremely sore and I'm vomiting and I have diarrhea. I'm going to go to the hospital. Whereas in a dog, you know, you, you might see those signs at home and think, oh, he ate something bad. And you don't actually notice until the next day or the day after when bilirubin is much higher. And so I think that's one of the main contributing factors to why we see it so much in, a, in an advanced stage of disease when it presents to us. And like you say, I mean, the concept of physiologic hyperbilirubinemia, physiologic or normal jaundice in a dog is not, uh, is not something we generally see. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it really, I think, comes down to a big part of it being that we don't treat uh, pediatric patients that often. You know, dogs don't... Uh, don't drive themselves to the hospital to give birth, at least as of now. Maybe, uh, maybe someday they'll be catching an Uber to the hospital or something like that, but not, uh, not right now. It's, um, it's interesting what you say about um, the way they communicated it to you, and it was very, very similar to us. Um, it was really, I mean, first of all, uh, interestingly, a physician did not, did not really communicate with us throughout most of the stay. Uh, it was all through the nursing staff, and it was sort of presented as, yep, yeah, it's a little high. We're going to check blood work tomorrow. And that's kind of the end of the discussion. And on the one hand, you know, you might think that that's not enough information, and I'd be sympathetic to that argument. But on the other hand, I do hope people who, who might be listening at home know that, generally speaking, this is a really, really common thing. It's something that they're used to dealing with and seeing frequently. And so in, in medicine, of course, I think a lot of people think, um, you know, physicians may often overlook some less common or rare things. I mean, hey, that may be true, but this is not a rare or uncommon thing. It's there, they're looking for it, they're used to dealing with it. And so if anybody is worried at home, you know, just know and understand that a low level of elevated bilirubin is normal. And if it does start to get high, it's something that they're really watching like a hawk and is very, very easily treatable. Um, do you know what some of the some of the treatments that you can use in an infant for for hyperbilirubinemia are? Uh, well, I know phototherapy is relatively yeah. common. Um, Fascinating, and, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's very interesting. And again, this is where my um, diagnostically curious brain, as a veterinarian, um, kind of marvels at the the human medicine aspect of this, which is just the amount of, you know, bilirubin that is, that can be indirectly broken down uh, through the skin with phototherapy. That's kind of, that's a really fascinating concept because I feel like my brain intrinsically tries to like translate it to animals. And now I'm just picturing like a dog under a UV lamp or, you know, something <laughs> like that, which is obviously ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but um, 
so I know phototherapy is is relatively common. Um, and that's what they were considering um, giving to my daughter. Um, but uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, that that's about the extent of my knowledge, because that's all that was really talked to us. I'm sure there's more um, for the more heightened things. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. I think phototherapy is uh, is a really fascinating thing. Um, it's one of the only true diseases in the world that you can treat with light. And the, the idea behind that is that UV rays break down some of that bilirubin to make it a, a little bit easier to deal with. And uh, so the, the old treatment used to be to put the baby in a window. And uh, that's what that's what my mom did with me, you know, and certainly something you can do at low levels. Um, and then at higher levels, they have more advanced UV lights that they use. It sounds crazy to say that that happens in animals, but it in theory can. Of course, one of the problems is the fur uh, and how that limits uh, UV ray transmission. But it is uh, it is a theoretically possible thing. So pretty fascinating. Anyway, I think we've we've spent enough time talking about medicine uh, for now. One uh, one funny story I just wanted to briefly relay. Um, a few years ago, I was working in America, and uh, where it worked there, where I was working in California, was we had a uh, um, you know people would call to book their appointment. And the person making the appointment would, of course, request full medical records and everything. But just to, in a brief spot on the schedule, would just write briefly what the owner had communicated to them was the problem. And uh, so, bless her soul, one of the nicest ladies there, the one who would always give you a smile in the morning and say, hope you had a great day. You know, I've got a fresh pot of coffee on this morning, just really salt of the earth. Um, uh, gave, me, gave me my schedule one morning and I looked at the first appointment and it said patient Billy Rubin B-I-L-L-Y space R-E-U-B-E-N my good friend Billy Rubin and I asked her I said who what patient is this? I mean, surely this is owned by a physician. They said, no, no. They said, I, I didn't quite understand. He's coming in for Billy Rubin, I guess for a treatment named after this Billy guy. I'm not sure. And uh, to this day, when I write the word Billy Rubin, I can't not write B-I-L-L-Y-R-E-U. I'm, I'm picturing just like the nicest um, receptionist who's like, you know, a, a middle-aged to elderly woman um, who like knits sweaters um, and I'm just picturing just like the nicest lady conveying that yeah, story literally. because who like would in the nicest way possible, just not get the joke. Um, yeah, that's right. You right, hit the nail on the head where you're and, just like, now nah, you're making this up. And she's just like, I'm not sure what you mean, sweetheart. And like, I just, that's how I picture her. Um, so. and you, you can't even bring it up because you just want to give her a hug and get a hug from her because everybody. Is oh, she gives the best her. hugs. I've never met yeah. this woman, but she gives the best hugs. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I, uh, I don't know how that's relevant at all to dadhood, that Billy Rubin story, but I just couldn't not share it. So anyway, that's, uh, that's it for right now. Thanks for sticking with us through this first topic. And uh, we'll be back after a short break. This is the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. Be back with you shortly. Welcome back to the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. My name is Christian, alongside my co-host and very good friend, Chris. Uh, we're a podcast, you know, talking about all things dad stuff, sports, comedy, failures, successes, jokes, terrible ones, um, and so much more. Um, and we're excited to be here with you. 
Um, so we're going to bring it back from break here, um, and we're going to do another recurring segment. Um, and this segment is called Rapid Fire. And now, Chris, I'm going to ask you a series of questions here, and I'd love to just get your thoughts right off the top of your head, as is the point of the segment. Um, I'm so genuinely excited for this. I don't, I don't know if listeners can pick up on the excitement in my voice, but I have no idea what questions I'm going to be asked. So I like, I'm legitimately pumped up right yeah, now. Yeah, there are certain parts of this podcast that we definitely do not tell each other prior to, and that's in order to try and give you guys the most genuine, um, you know, kind of realistic and kind of, um, you know, uh, thought process and, and banter between the two of us. So yeah, no, Chris has no idea what these topics are. Um, but I'll just kind of give you a quick intro as to where I started with this. And it's going to lead into our next topic of discussion, um, mm. which is just a little bit of the kind of changes that I've noticed in in, a, in multiple scenarios as a result of the pandemic, um, mm. one of which is sports. Um, and so for those of you who are listening, who know Chris and I well, and I know we've referenced it a few times, we are um, extreme baseball nerds. And what I've noticed recently, and I'm going to get into this a little bit in the next topic, but uh, is some changes in certain sporting franchises as a result of the pandemic. Um, I'm sure a lot of people don't really have too much sympathy for sporting franchises who are losing a lot of money because they trade in the millions and billions. But um, there are a lot of teams who are scaling back significantly um, for financial reasons. Um, and one of this was kind of made apparent in a couple of ways. Um, the Colorado Rockies traded away Nolan Arenado recently and um, franchise player, gold platinum glove winner. Um, and uh, they really just traded him away because they couldn't afford him anymore. And they knew that they needed to scale back payroll. Um, much like my my favorite baseball team, the Cleveland baseball team. Um, I do not refer to them by their insensitive name. Uh, they are the Cleveland baseball team to me. Um, but they traded away basically their franchise player, one of my favorite players, Francisco Lindor, basically for the same reason, rather than sign him to hundreds of millions of dollars when they were trying to cut payroll. And so I always wonder, like, how is this going to affect the outlook on sports? which then got me just thinking about sports in general. I know we talked a little bit about our daughters and sports and everything like that. Um, and so our rapid fire is going to be a, a smorgasbord or charcuterie board of um, sports related <laughs> rapid fire questions. Um, so Chris, are you ready? Excellent. I am ready. I, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to add one brief comment on something that you made, which I totally agree with, which, sure. you know, uh, you had mentioned that whether people feel sympathy for sports franchises or not. And, you know, of course I think for most of us, like I don't feel sympathy for the NFL, you know, I don't feel, I mean, do I feel sympathy? I feel sympathy for everyone who's going through something, but they are not the people who are most negatively affected in this pandemic. Right. But I will say, I think one of the one of the unfortunate negative consequences in the sporting world is the significant financial hit that minor league sports teams take have absolutely taken, uh, through this. You know, the, these are athletes who are often scraping to make ends meet. You know, um, that don't don't have a big pile of cash to retire on and owners who, um, you know, are relying on fans in the stands. They aren't funded by TV contracts. And so I think, unfortunately, this, this is one of those pressures placed on an industry where the rich 
don't get richer but are allowed to survive whereas the the poor are not and that's uh yeah it's a very unfortunate consequence because minor league sports is such an important part of of communities um particularly outside of the big cities but i mean i digress but i just wanted to uh to wave a little flag for the poor minor league sports owners out there we're thinking of you absolutely Alrighty, so rapid fire. Um, like we mentioned, I'm going to ask him a series of questions. I'll get his uh, his uh, off the top of his head answers, um, and then I buzzers. will and then I will answer them uh, kind of myself in tow. All right. So uh, question one: If you could pick one or two athletes, I'll give you two just in case um, mm. that you wish you could have seen in their prime, mm. who would they be? Wow! 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 Um, hmm. really, really good question. So I think for, for that, what you're going for is like a, an entertainment value. So I'm thinking a sport that provides a lot of entertainment. So the first one I'm going to go, I'm going to go a little bit off board. Usain Bolt is who I'm going to go with. Interesting. I mean, a legendary sprinter. I think, I think it would be fair to say, not that I'm a track and field expert, but the hands down greatest, uh, sprinter of all time. Um, and just to see his dominance would be incredible to see everybody lined up at the line and just know who's going to win, whether it's the 100, the 200, the relays. I mean, it, it, it would be incredible to see, I think, especially in a packed Olympic stadium with, you know, tens of thousands of people. That would be that would be my number one, I think. Number two would be a tough one. I mean, I never saw MJ. I never saw Michael Jordan. And to see his athleticism, his dominance in an entertaining sport like that, that would be incredible. So as much as much as hockey is my uh, 1A uh, in all sports, I would say uh, I think I'm going to have to go non-hockey for my answer. I'm going to go Usain Bolt, number one, Michael Jordan, number two. What about you, Christian? Wow. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I probably could have named 100 athletes, and I don't know that I would have named either of those, <laughs> you, which, is, which is quite funny. You wouldn't but... have named Michael Jordan? You wouldn't no, have put Michael Jordan in no, your top you, 100 though. athletes okay, to see. Okay. All right. Fine. But I figured for you, like I was, sure. I was thinking, you know, yeah. If you were guessing like mine, Gretzky yeah. would have been an obvious one, or uh, yeah. I don't even know, you know, Maurice Bobby Richard, Orr would have been or cool. yeah, something like I was picturing something of that nature. Um, but, I saw Dominic Hasek play for my team for six months, and then and then blow up his groin, and and we all got sad. But that's another story for another day. Another story for another day. Um, okay, I'm gonna go with. Um, only because we were, I was talking about this particular person with a uh, another group of friends, but I'm going to say Tony Gwynn, mm, which might okay. be a little okay. bit bizarre, uh, but we are baseball nerds, and just uh, a hitter's hitter, just to see how ridiculous of a hitter he was. Just a quick random stat. Um, so Greg Maddox, who's a Hall of Fame pitcher, went to a full count, so a 3-2 count or a three-ball count, on 314 hitters in his career. So he won more games than he had three ball counts, 107 of which were intentional walks. So that's how dominant Greg Maddox was. Tony Gwynn's batting average against him was like 494, and he never (laughs) struck out. So like, that's just, anyway, so Tony Gwynn uh, was going to be one of mine. That's such an incredible stat when you think about that. I mean, for Greg Maddox, I think it's hard to, like, you have to really dig into what the statistic means to understand what that means as far as athletic dominance. I know you said Tony Gwynn, and I'm going Greg Maddox here for a second. But just to have the command of a strike zone that you put the ball exactly where you want to put the ball every time. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do the same thing 
nine out of 10 times in a row of anything. I mean, that's incredible. Just the muscle and, and nerve control. Unbelievable. Um, so my, uh, my number two uh, was going to be Wayne Gretzky. Um, but just because, uh, you know, Canadian hockey, um, you know, have to, have to, have to go that way. But um, I'm going to, I'm going to turn a little bit and maybe just go nostalgic real quick. Um, and I'm going to say Gordie Howe. Um, mm. And the reason mm. being is um, my dad is a huge Red Wings fan. He's the reason I'm a Red Wings fan. And um, Gordie Howe, obviously, um, longtime Detroit Red Wing. Um, and the Gordie Howe hat trick, um, which is Absolutely. a goal, an assist, and a fight in the same period. <laughs> Um, which hilariously enough, he only did once. Um, really? And, That's interesting. I didn't know that. Actually. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I, so I would say Gordie Howe, um, for that reason. So those would be mine. Um, all right. Next question here, which is, um, your coolest interaction with a pro athlete, um, or, uh, I can extend that to sports venue or arena, your coolest interaction with a pro athlete or sports venue. Oh boy, Christian. Oh my goodness. What a, what a difficult question. I mean, it's an excellent question because I have a hundred incredible memories running through my mind right now. Um, I mean, certainly I have to put up there for some of our pro uh, sports memories, the time that you and I with, with our two good friends went to Fenway Park. I mean, that was an incredible time, but I, I mean, you had said with a pro athlete, so I'm going to, I'm going to stick true to that. And, um, I guess I'm going to go with a bit of a cop-out answer, maybe a bit more of a relationship uh, one, but actually my um, a, a, a friend and, and neighbor of mine who grew up on my street uh, made it to the NHL, actually. Um, I, maybe I won't, I shouldn't say his name because that might say the street that I'm from. No, I could say his name. That's fine. Matt Bradley. He uh, played uh, for Team Canada in the World Juniors, made it to the Sharks and the Penguins. And I mean, we played street hockey growing up. So from from to see him, I mean, I was a little kid when he was like a teenager and he was kind of the hero to all of us little kids in the community. You know, he was, he was Matt, right? He was the guy that you wanted to play road hockey with. So when he played in his first NHL game, his grandmother's house was right, right across the street from me and we all watched the game together. Oh, that's and really so cool. for me that, that, I mean, it's, you know, not a specific interaction, but I would say just that idea of when prof professional sports becomes a little bit more humanized, when you know somebody who kind of makes it to the show and he was a salt of the earth guy um, and stayed that way for as long as I knew him. I mean, I haven't talked to him now. He's retired now and I haven't talked to him in probably 10 years, but um, yeah, just to see someone from your community make it is a really cool feeling. What about you? Um, well, I have had the pleasure of meeting, you know, several pro athletes, whether it's just, you know, signing autographs or, or whatever it may be. Um, but I am going to go with, um, Chad Bettis. Uh, now hmm. Chad Bettis, for those of you who don't know, is a baseball pitcher, um, but he's also a cancer survivor. And, um, my friend and I, uh, he pitched for the Colorado Rockies at the time. Uh, my friend, um, our friend, um, is a very uh, big Colorado Rockies fan. And so yeah, we went to yes, Pittsburgh yes. to see them in uh play in pittsburgh and so before the game there were some people signing autographs of which chad was one and um got a chance to talk to him it was an april game in pittsburgh so it was very cold and there was like maybe two thousand people in the stands and so we before the game there was clearly plenty of room around him and we got to chat with him for like 
I mean, it felt like a long time. I'm sure it was only a couple of minutes, but just to kind of just even vaguely just hear his perspective on everything, um, you know, just to be like, we were like, you know, thanks, Chad. We really appreciate it. Like this and that. And he was just like, no, thank you. Like, you know, hey, I get to I still get to play this game, you know, because people like you still come to watch and I still get to, um, you know, live my dream because of what, you know, because you guys make it happen. Um, hmm. And well, just uh, you mentioned kind of salt of the earth kind of people. I'm um, I can say that I'm obviously lucky enough to not have been afflicted personally, you know, with any type of, you know, cancer or anything like that. But just, uh, I feel like, you know, just his kind of perspective on everything was, was really cool. Cause here I am thinking, you know, a major league baseball player is probably just going to be like, yeah, thanks kid. Uh, you know, and just like <laughs> hand off. I mean, I say kid, I was still like 30 at the time, but um, you know, but um, you know, he is looking at you kid. Yeah. Yeah. He's looking at you kid. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was really, really neat um, just to kind of sit there. And it was like, I feel like, uh, my friend and I, who were at the game, we almost just like sat through the first inning, almost just kind of like, wow, like, you know, just, mm. you know, just kind of yeah. gives you, gives you that perspective as life tends to, tends to bonk you on the head with that kind of perspective every once in a while. So kind of absorbing, uh, absorbing that philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And processing it in the most philosophical place of modern America, which is an open air ballpark on a PNC park. I mean, it wasn't summer. It was probably, uh, for the Americans in the group, like 40 degrees. Um, and for the Canadians in the group, like four or five degrees Celsius. So like, it was not warm. It was a Tuesday night in April. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was snowing. Um, the less glamorous, the, the base, the baseball games that are a little harder to sell people on. <laughs> but I mean, we got second row seats for like dirt cheap because nobody was there. Um, you mentioned your receptionist that gives the best hugs. The usher at the game was this like 80 year old woman who gave my friend and I her hand warmers that she had inside her mittens. Oh. Um, so like that just oh, goes to show, man. like I said, salt of the earth people. That's anyway. salt of the earth. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. salt of the earth. Anyway, rapid fire taking forever, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Question three. Um, an athlete with whom you are very conflicted so I'll um, I'll give you mine as my I'll yeah, give you my sure. answer yeah, so you can kind of understand what I'm what I'm kind of getting at here. Mine's Tiger Woods. Mm, great answer. Because oh, I want answer, I want to appreciate his dominance, and I don't think anybody can argue when he was in his prime, like Tiger and Red on the Sunday. You were like, yeah, this is over. Um, like just watching him destroy a golf ball, and then. Um, you know, everything that he did. Um, but it's just, it's so conflicting, right? Because uh, obviously there were some less than reputable things um, in his non-professional or his non-career related life um, that just makes it very hard to cheer for him. Not that I would actively cheer against him, but it was one of those where I find myself guilty for being like, oh man, like what he won the masters recently, you know, I really wanted to be happy for him, but I had this thing in my gut that was just like, like I almost yeah. couldn't be happy for a success. Um, which brings into the whole concept of just like second chances and, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing, which is a conversation for another day. But anyway, my answer, Tiger Woods. It's a really, really great answer. I think it's interesting as well because it also raises a really interesting question. And again, a, a bigger topic than we should deal with in rapid fire. But the idea of to what extent can you can an athlete's success in their chosen field be parsable from their personal life? To what extent 
you know, is it one of those things where like we shouldn't look and as long as we don't know someone's personal life, then it's okay. But then once we know it, then we have to reconcile with it. And how far do you take it? Do you cheer for or not cheer for an athlete based on their political beliefs, based on, uh, you know, like what, what food they eat, what religion they are? I mean, where, where do you draw that line? Obviously, you know, Tiger did some things that if if he was my friend, I would think we're unspeakable. I mean, awful things. And I, and I would say, how could you do that? Um, and, and yet here I am looking at just his accomplishments on, uh, you know, on the fairway. I'm, I'm a big Tiger Woods fan, but I, I think that's a great one, Christian, because I am very conflicted about whether I admire him or not, whether I respect him or not. Do I enjoy watching him? And can I separate that from respect? Um, I'll... Uh, I mean, I don't want to hedge my answer. I guess my 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 first answer is a bit of a tough one because it's a person who I, I'm not conflicted on. You know, it's an athlete I don't really admire or respect, but it raises a similarly interesting topic, um, which is someone like Lance Armstrong. Hmm. So Lance Armstrong cheated, and he cheated and won seven times in a row, and he lied about it for a long time, and then he admitted it and seemed to have very little remorse over it. And one thing he said was that everybody cheated. And I don't know the extent to which that's true. And I suppose that's maybe where some of the conflict comes from. But let's imagine for a moment, let's put our, put our mind in a place where he's telling the truth and, and everybody did cheat. To what extent is he a cheater in that environment? Should we just completely uh, vacate every Tour de France results? Just, just pretend that the race wasn't run maybe for seven years or 10 years or however long this sport was affected by systemic cheating. And it begs the question about where we draw the line for cheating. And you and I being big baseball fans, steroids is a big part of that. Steroid and, so yeah. I, and I suppose I have to stumble into, I guess what my real answer is about true conflict. A player who I really want to like but can't like, I don't know what to think, is my favorite baseball team, the Toronto Blue Jays, just signed one of the biggest free agents that they've ever signed in their entire history, which is World Series champion and confirmed cheater, George Springer. Uh, incredible baseball player, you know, clearly is an all-star regardless of whether he cheats or not. Uh, but he did, he and his team, the Houston Astros did steal signs and they did cheat knowingly on their way to a world series. And he did benefit as a, as a result from it. And so on one part of my mind wants to convince myself, well, you know, the commissioner handed out punishment. So he served his punishment, whatever that was. He's rehabilitated. He's allowed to play again. But then the other half of me as a baseball fan says that punishment wasn't sufficient. You know, this, they didn't lose their World Series championship despite cheating on the way there. Um, and so here I am, diehard Blue Jays fan. We just signed the best free agent in our entire franchise history. He, despite Vladdy Guerrero, I mean, we have now, he's the best hitter on our team, no question. And here I am having to decide whether I like him or not. And if you asked me this question a month ago, I would have said I hate him. So now I say, well, he's got a blue shirt on, so I love him. And that's, you know, the the eternal struggle and the, the conflict, I suppose, in being a fan. No, and that's, again, you mentioned it, you know, when they're draped in your colors, um, you know, sometimes it can make it, uh, make it a, a little bit easier to look the other way. Um, and that's like the thing about fa- sports fandom, which I feel like is, is very interesting. Um, 
I, I think he's a cheater. So that's just my, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. you well, know. you're a, you're a Cleveland spiders fan. So, Oh, I want a Cleveland spiders Jersey so bad. Well, I mean, I, Hey, I grew up in Hamilton, obviously, you know, I, I love the Jays. Um, I, I really, really do. Um, and you're uh, your your mom's a Jays fan, I believe. Is absolutely, right? season ticket yeah. holder from day one. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, I get it. You know, because I'm sitting here, you're like, yeah, on a just strict. I guess, do they have X's and O's in baseball? I don't think so. I think that's the football <laughs> term. Uh, but on, but you know, on paper, great signing. Just ethically, it's just it's so hard. Um, yeah. Uh, so no, I get that one. Um, Alrighty, if you could have dinner with three historical sports figures, influential historical sports figures, and I'm going to go historical. Oh, Christian. Who would they be? Oh, Christian. Holy Hannah. My gracious. Um, wow. Uh, Jackie Robinson. That's got to be one. Uh, just to hear his story of what he went through, um, to hear his, his journey. You know, I mean, I could listen to that for hours. So uh, Jackie Robinson, got to be one of them. Um, boy, boy, boy. Um, I I think it would be really cool. I mean, this is this sounds like a, you know, like a like a cliched answer. But to Wayne Gretzky was one of the most interesting superstars in all of sports history in that he is so mild mannered. He, he almost is like this is going to sound awful because he's a hero to both of us, but he almost doesn't have a personality in public, you know? So to peel back the curtain and to talk to him person to person, to understand as the greatest player and uh, the greatest thinker, I think, of the game in many ways, the greatest vision, let's say, not thinker, the greatest vision of the game unfolding in front of him, um, just to hear what that's like, um, I think would be would be a really incredible thing. Um, and, and such a long career, um, just, so just to peel back the curtain, I think on a, on a hero that I feel like I don't know very well, if that makes sense, you know, someone who's kind of hidden uh, a little bit. And then who would my last one be gracious? I mean, I think I'd have to pick someone who revolutionized a sport. Um, and so, I mean, I actually might dip my toes into one of your teams and go with someone like Vince Lombardi. Mm. I would love to hear about you know, seeing what the NFL is today, you know, to hear his perspective on what he saw as the future of that sport at that time and the way he revolutionized it and, and what this, how this, this mythos surrounding the Packers developed and evolved under his tenure um, would be really, really cool. I'm sure if I thought about it some more, I'd probably come up with 10 other people, but uh, yeah, I'll go Jackie Robinson, easy answer. And then Wayne Gretzky, and Vince Lombardi. What about you? So my first one was Jackie Robinson as well. Um, <laughs> really? So, yeah. <laughs> so baseball yeah. nerds think alike. Um, yeah. I think like you mentioned, it's pretty obvious. Um, my second one actually is going to be uh, Cassius Clay. Um, mm, or as one. he is also known, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Um, great answer. You're going to sense a theme incredible. in my, in my uh, round table around dinner here. But um, yeah, just to, I mean, you hear the stories, you see the documentaries, but um, I don't know. That's got to be a yeah. hell of a swagger to, you know, to I, have at the dinner table um, and I just to hear say, everything about his, um, you know, views on the, you know, on the war and all that stuff. And I mean, he literally stood up for what he believed in and backed away from the prime of his career mm -hmm. um, just to, to stand up for, for what he believed in. 
against all public pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And just, yeah, just something that's, um, I mean, I'm sure it's paralleled in some cases, um, but I mean, really unparalleled in a lot of ways. Um, so um, that's going to be mine. And then my last one is going to be uh, Billie Jean King. Um, mm, and I had to think yeah, about this one answer. for, uh, I had to think about this one for a while. Again, I'm sure, like you said, I'm sure I could think of, you know, a hundred more. I'd have a, a big dinner party. Um, <laughs> but just, you know, just everything she went through and I'm a huge tennis fan as well. So just everything she went through in terms of building the women's game. Um, and then also, of course, everything related to her, um, you know, fight for LGBTQ rights um, and all that type of stuff. So um, I think Billie Jean King just, um, you know, having that historical aspect of it um, as well. So that would be my three. Yeah, um, great answer. Great and then answer. Uh, last last question, a rapid fire. Um, we have to figure out a way to do a rapid fire segment that takes less than 15 <laughs> minutes. Um, but that's fine. Um, it always ends up being good conversation. But um, all right, last I one. Need to, it's the, the problem is that in some ways it's that we don't go through it beforehand. So like, I'm so interested in your answers. You yeah, know? absolutely. So, like... so we are a victim of our own, uh, yeah, of our own design here. So, um, all right. Last one here. A female athlete you'd love your daughter to grow up knowing about. Oh, wow. 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 Um, Boy, what an excellent question. Well, um, yeah, I've got my answer. Yeah, I thought about it for a moment. I mean, there's there's some very intriguing options out there. You know, people who accomplished a lot in their careers. Obviously, Serena and Venus Williams come to mind. I mean, incredible athletes. Um, but as you know, I'm a bit of a soccer nerd, both in, uh, in fandom and playing. And um, uh, we, as Canadians, are blessed with one of the greatest uh, soccer players of all time, which of course is Christine Sinclair. So, um, that's, uh, that's who I would go with. One of the greatest, uh, goal scorers in international soccer history. I, I believe she actually may have set the record for most official international goals, uh, of any, um, athlete on the, in the, in soccer, in the international stage. Um, she's an incredible striker, again, vision for the game, uh, her maturity, the way she leads, the way she's been a leader for team Canada for such a long time. Um, Christine Sinclair is a really incredible role model. And just as she's coming into the end of her career and my daughter is starting her career of, of life, let's say, um, I think that would be someone I, uh, I hope that she has an opportunity to know about since she won't really get an opportunity to watch her on, uh, on the pitch. What about you, Christian? So that's a really, really great answer. Um, and, uh, I actually, I did think about Christine Sinclair as going to be one of my answers, but I'm going to go slightly different into Canadian sports lore. Um, and I'm actually going to go Haley Wickenheiser, uh, is yeah, going to be my, uh, it's going to be my answer. I'm going to have a one B in a second, which is really funny. You went the soccer route. Um, but I'm going to go Canadian and American as my daughter is a dual citizen. Um, so I'm going to go Haley Wickenheiser, just the, um, epicness of, uh, her, uh, career in terms of, um, you know, Canadian women's hockey and what she was able to achieve, uh, for our country, um, and lead and grow the sport for women. Um, but then she also actually played in the men's professional hockey leagues, um, in Europe as well. So just her, yeah. uh, breaking barriers in that, in that way, um, you know, playing with the boys and, and proving that she could do it just as well, if not better. So, yeah, um, in a very, very physical game. I mean, it should be noted, I think a lot of people talk about, you know, men in Rayom as a professional female athlete in, in the NHL. And of course, goaltending.
defenders uh, are able to make the transition in, into the more physical men's game a little bit easier. Uh, but Haley Wickenheiser did it as a skater, as a forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is just so incredible to do. Um, and I believe, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think she's like an assistant coach or associate coach with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now. I believe you are correct. Um, yes. Which is really, really amazing. So yeah, great answer with Haley Wickenheiser. And again, a leader, a captain, gold medalist. So yeah, great answer. And I'm just going to close that by my my quick one B, um, if I can have an American one real quick. Uh, you mentioned uh, soccer and everything. I'm going to also add on there, um, which hurts me in my soul a little bit, just being obviously Canadian in my core. But I'm going to also say Megan Rapino. And mm-hmm. um, I, I grew up originally just loathing that U.S. women's soccer team just there was a there was a semifinal game, you know, in the World Cup that just it just it still doesn't sit right with me. And I'm a bitter, sore loser. Um, but I digress. Um, but just everything that she's done um, in terms of, um, again, LGBT rights um, and her uh, social injustice stances um and I should say her stance against social injustice um, um, and, and those types of things and just being unapologetic about it um, and uh, and open in her um, struggles in many ways um, while just maintaining this like unbelievable dominance um, in as a leader, not only on the soccer field, but uh, in life. So my my one B is also Megan Rapino. Um, great, great answer. So. Heck of a soccer player, too. I mean, oh, absolutely. Just a heck of a good soccer player. So, absolutely. yeah, awesome. Um, so anyway, that's going to bring us kind of uh, to the end of rapid fire, um, the slowest rapid fire known to man. Um, but it's going to kind of lead we just me our gun where... jammed as we went. That was the problem. I mean, we just have to kept, we had to reload the musket. We yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just had to keep putting that, uh, gunpowder in there and stuffing it down the barrel. So, um, which kind of brings me into our next topic of conversation, which I alluded to a little bit at the beginning, and it was the, um, kind of just changes in, the sporting world that I've noticed uh, related to COVID and not, I don't mean this is necessarily the immediate impact that is, Oh yeah, there's no fans, which is a bummer or, Oh, you know, uh, you know, the NBA had to play in the bubble or, you know, nothing like that necessarily, but just the short term changes that have been made. You mentioned uh, one of your um, kind of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, you're, you, you sympathize with the minor league system, right? And so last year in my, in minor league baseball, it didn't exist, right? They just, it just, they just canceled it. Um, and so for those players who, like you mentioned, make, I'm not going to say a marginal amount of money, but I mean, compared to the major league players make, you know, very little. Um, and so those people who really rely on that, um, you know, on that income just didn't get to play or didn't get to make money or um, those types of things. And we mentioned, you know, um, sports franchises that are um, taking the financial side of it and and f- potentially, well, no, not potentially, who are affecting their franchises long term um, in many ways um, by decisions they have to make now, whether it's for financial security or or otherwise. And so we talked about, you know, Nolan Arenado, um, Francisco Lindor were kind of big ones um, as franchises who traded away star players, um, you know, just in the interest of financial security. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are obviously other reasons that go into this, but, um, and so one of the, and so that kind of got me leading it started with sports. Um, but then it kind of got me thinking into, well, how does that translate to us as parents, you know, um, Mm. parenting during COVID, um, has changed dramatically, you know, where, whether you're home with your kids, 
helping them with homeschooling because they're not in school um, or whether you've decided to homeschool your kids personally, um, you know, in that type of thing, daycares that were closed for a while, um, you know, in that kind of standpoint. And um, Chris, I know you're a little bit earlier on in this process uh, than I am being fatherhood, just because obviously your daughter is a little bit younger than mine. Um, but I'm curious, just your thoughts right off the top here, which is just, um, what is something you feel you've noticed kind of, uh, that the pandemic has changed, um, dramatically to, uh, the way that you, as I say, the way that you parent, not that you knew the way that you were going to parent per se, um, but maybe your preconceived notions of parenting that has changed dramatically in how you approach, um, you know, taking care of your daughter. Hmm. Wow. Uh, an excellent question. I mean, something that, that really is in some ways deeply philosophical as well, you know, because it, it's, it's, some of it's just practicalities, um, but they influence a broader, broader changes in, in parenting. Um, I think one thing that I feel like I've noticed, I don't know about you, Christian. I mean, I, I can't, I would say that this applies to me and, and my wife, uh, certainly, but I feel like it's something I've noticed in a lot of people as well. I think we're seeing it a little bit in the housing boom is uh, people having a larger appreciation and, and uh, I mean, respect sounds like a word with such gravitas, but maybe that is what I mean. Respect for the home, respect for your your place of living, you know, whether that's an apartment or house or whatever it is, but your home and how important home is, that it should be the place where you are the most secure, the happiest, where you want to spend the most time, not that it's this place that you sleep in between work shifts, but that it's really your primary place of focus and work is this thing that, you know, I mean, for you and I as veterinarians, we have to go into work, but, um, you know, something that is, is really the primary focus and work is secondary, whether you're working from home or not. And so I think maybe, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people have turned towards homeschooling and, and things like that. So I think a greater appreciation of home and maybe a greater appreciation of time spent with our parents. Um, I know when I was growing up, um, there's this, you probably um, remember the, uh, the famous Seinfeld uh, episode where George proclaims the summer of George and he's going to do all the things that he wants to do. Uh, well, one year my mom uh, left her, her job and, and went to a new job and took the summer off in between. And she and I spent the entire summer, summer together. We went to baseball games. We, um, you know, she... Uh, we went up north, we went hiking together, we did art galleries, we did all, we did crafts, we did all, all kinds of fun stuff together. And I always remember that as the summer I spent with my mom. And so from a parenthood standpoint, I hope that with this greater appreciation and respect for home, I really hope we have a whole generation of kids growing up and thinking back on this pandemic as the year they got to spend, even if it wasn't going to baseball games, spending it with their parents and, and, and cherishing that as a good memory. And I don't know how long lasting that will be. I mean, I know your question was what, what changes have occurred. And I, I don't know if that's if I'm answering the question well, but I would say, I think to me, that's one, one big thing that I've noticed is just a, a, an appreciation for home and, and hopefully a bit more time spent uh, with parents. What, uh, what about you, Christian? What, how, how do you feel that this has changed your uh, parenting at home? Hmm. Well, I would, I, I think I kind of thought about it in a, in a little bit of a different way, but I'm glad you kind of brought that, uh, brought that to light. Um, cause it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And I feel like, um, 
for those people who know me, um, know me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, uh, you know, happy go lucky guy, but in a lot of ways, I'm a pretty big pessimist, um, especially when it comes to society. Um, and so I kind of looked at it a little bit from, from another perspective, but I'll, 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 I'll back up a minute and say, um, as I know, we've introduced in the podcast, I live in the United States. Um, but I was born and raised in Ontario, Canada, um, and my parents still reside there. And so just due to the pandemic restrictions, um, I have not seen my parents in now um, over a full year. And um, and neither has my daughter. So my daughter has not seen her grandparents um, in, in over a calendar year. I should say um, she's seen them many a times over FaceTime, you know, virtually, um, but she has not seen them in, in the flesh in over a year. Maybe um, they can do a podcast together. Mm, <laughs> we'll have to think of a hilarious name for that. Um, so yeah, stay tuned next week when we, uh, when we, when we introduce that podcast, our spinoff podcast. Um, but, um, so that's been really difficult, um, for me, uh, to kind of rationalize and, and, and think through, um, because I know that my parents struggle mightily with the fact that they don't get to see their granddaughter grow up. Um, and they worry about their granddaughter, not knowing who they are. Um, and, and, you know, that type of thing, which I don't really think is the case. Like when my daughter sees her grandparents on the screen, um, they, she immediately, her face lights up and she knows who they are. And, you know, they have a couple of things that they love to do. My mom loves to sing with her, um, you know, and this type of thing, uh, for those of you out there who know Sharon, Lois and Bram, um, kids show, there's a lot of skin and marinky dinky dink that goes on, on FaceTime calls. Um, and if you don't know what that is, look it up. You won't be disappointed. Um, and so there's a lot of different things like that. Um, that they get to do together that my daughter absolutely loves. Um, so, I mean, all in all, it's okay. Um, but the thing that I thought about um, as I was going through with this, uh, which a lot of it stems from my mom, my mom uh, spent most of her, she was a, an educator. She spent most of her career teaching children with multiple disabilities. So not only kids with learning disabilities and cognitive dysfunctions, but physical disabilities um, as well. So for example, she had one child, um, who was a particular favorite of mine, who not only had cerebral palsy, um, but also had a learning disorder. So, I mean, so if just to kind of paint a little bit of a picture. So she had a lot of nonverbal kids in her class. And so my mom is fully fluent in sign language um, and has maintained it. And she loves to teach my daughter sign language. Um, and so that's kind of one thing that grandma and uh, granddaughter do together. Hmm, that's um, really cool. Can you do sign language, Christian? I mean, very minimally. Um, probably, probably as much as my daughter knows. Um, and uh, still, that's really cool. But um, and so one of the things that I thought about as this kind of kept going was, you know, you hear about the whole t thing about like screen time with children, you know, when the thing how you want to. You know, some people are like, oh, I don't get, uh, let my kids watch any TV. I don't want them to be off screens and this, that, and the other thing. But in this particular world where we're doing so many things virtually, um, and I mean, it's the only way that my granddaughter can see her grandparents. You know, every time I'm, I'm doing it, I'm wondering, you know, how much FaceTime, not that it's too much, but like, is there going to be lasting effects from the amount of screen my child is looking at at such a young age i have no idea That's really interesting. or That's for really example interesting. even just kids who are um my next door neighbor has has three kids um of varying ages um and you know they're on the computer all the time because that's how they have to do school right now 
Um, you know, and it's just one of those, like, how much is that going to impact their cognitive development, um, you know, without the ability to socialize with their classmates? I mean, even if they're in kindergarten or the first grade, you know, and all these types of things, you know, like, so my daughter has basically been at home her entire life, right? Like she right. doesn't, I mean, we go wow. for walks and things like that. Um, and we have um, close friends, um, you know, with whom we feel comfortable interacting, socially distant, of course, um, but there are, um, you know, kids around her age. Um, and, and and we do that type of thing. So there's still some social interaction, but for the most part, like, I feel like my daughter knows her parents, her grandparents, and like, that's maybe it. Um, and so I always just kind of wonder, I don't know what the impact of that's going to be. Um, and yeah, that's so that's, that's kind of where, that's kind of where my thought process is where like, well, I completely agree. You mentioned just the value of, um, you, you know, you hear the phrase, I feel like it's on every, uh, you know, sign inside a consignment shop, you know, it's a, a, a house is a home or, you know, whatever that, that old adage is. But, um, and I think you're, you're very, you're very true. I guess I just, I think about it from a little bit of a different perspective, which is just the kind of long-term effects of, of child and early development in such yeah, a different I, time. I like that. I like that. And I, I think in some ways, I mean, one could make the argument that we're actually in some ways saying the same thing. What we're talking about is an argument for balance. And if, if in a world pre COVID, the balance was tipped too far away from the home as a place of happiness. And of course, in a lockdown, it's tipped way too far on the opposite side. And your daughter has lived an entire their entire life at home, as is mine. And you think that's too far on the opposite side of the balance. You know, maybe the initial uh, having a pandemic tips the balance more towards home is important. And spending all your time at home tips the balance towards realizing the importance of variety in your life. So I think I think it's a very interesting comment. And one thing you said about screen time, I think it's very, um, you know, I, I think you and I have talked about this a lot before. That I'm a I'm a believer when it comes to science and establishment of causation and understanding long term effects. One of the challenges that we face in technology is the long time period of human life. Uh, and the potential effects over a course of a full life relative to the short period of time that technology has existed for. So, I mean, uh, iPads have existed in the time that, and smartphones and iPads have existed in the time that you and I have known each other and been friends, uh, which is pretty crazy to think about. And so the idea that we can really fully know what the long-term effects are of a lifetime of exposure starting at a very young age. I mean, it's just impossible and that's no one's fault, but it has to do with the fact that, you know, if a human lives for 80 years and these uh, technology has only been in place for several years, we don't really understand what the long-term effects are. And so I feel you, you know, I mean, you and I growing up in the nineties, we had some TV time, uh, but you know, where, where's the line? What's too much? Was it too much for us even? Did it, did it affect our development in some way? It really is hard to know. Um, and I think one thing that the pandemic has opened my eyes to a, a little bit is I think I always was maybe a little bit attracted on the surface to the idea of homeschooling. I always thought it would be cool, not so much in a negative way, like you don't appeal to the school system. That, that's not quite it, but more just that you want to share your knowledge. There's like an excitement there. But I think the pandemic has taught me not to do that. 
because I've realized the importance of social interaction to all of us, but particularly children. Uh, my nephew and niece, both who have spent their entire school years at home, but for I think like eight days in the fall. Um, and it, it reminds you how critically important friendships are uh, as a child. And, and, and I think I would never, I shouldn't say never, you know, every, everybody knows what's right for them. But for me, I would say I don't think that I would consider homeschooling for my kids, whereas it was something that I was really seriously considering before the pandemic. But now having gone through this and seeing what that school environment, how important that is, I'm not sure if I would consider that anymore. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, um, I, I would say just being the child myself, being the child of two lifelong educators, um, I've never really understood the desire to homeschool. Um, again, certainly not here to say anti-homeschool. I will always maintain, and the pandemic has taught me this in a variety of ways as well, which is whatever you feel is best for your child is what you should do. Um, and I fully believe that whether I agree with you in concept or not. Um, and I'm sure that's probably something we'll get into in, in other discussions, but um, I've never really um, subscribed to the homeschooling idea per se. And the reason, and I think um, not only this pandemic way, but also in um, the way that the current um, maybe social media landscape maybe has um has driven this as well, also with political ramifications of this, is that it's very easy for you to get down and keep going down your own rabbit hole, um, you know, into and spiraling into this just kind of microcosm of just reinforcing all of the things that you believe. Um, mm. Not that you shouldn't be strong in your particular beliefs. However, experiencing other points of view and thought processes and um, other sides of, of, of political issues, uh, current events, um, you know, those types of things. I mean, I know, Chris, uh, from our kind of academia, um, you know, years, um, you know, we think about, you know, peer reviewed journals and all of the right. There's all of that different data and there's all of these different types of um, studies that go into finding certain results and causation. So you mentioned that it's not uh, it's not a because I think this, therefore, it's based on, you know, um, a bunch of different um, avenues and thought processes and everything kind of rolled into one. And so I think if anything, the pandemic has taught me the importance of that. And so just the um, inner anxiety uh, potentially of just my making sure that my daughter has that, um, which I don't know if, and I, again, and I truly mean this, I don't know if, if that's going to, the lack of that potentially is going to affect the development of, you know, children at this time going forward. Yeah. Um, and it's, know. I guess really what it comes down to is, you know, how, how long, right? I mean, that's the unknown. Sure. If she, if she were taken away from, you know, if she was kept at home with no friends for the first 10 years of her life, absolutely. I mean, absolutely that would have ramifications, no question. And so where is that line? You know, is it a, is it a year? Is it a couple of years? Like how, how intense does it have to be? Right. And I should really clarify and just be like, say, Mike, my child is not even two. Right. So like my I have not had the stress and I do not envy parents that have had to make the stressful call about what to do with their kids in schooling at this time. Like, again, I don't choose, I don't pretend to to have any idea of what I would do. Um, I feel like my wife and I 
you know, she said, she's like, oh, I'd quit my job and homeschool her. And I was just like, oh, okay. I don't know that I thought about it that carefully. Um, but um, so again, I don't, I certainly don't envy parents in whatever decision they make. And like I said before, whatever decision you feel like is best for your child is what you should absolutely do. Um, so I, and I should say that again. So I mean, I, I thankfully, I truly mean that thankfully have not really had to make that standpoint because my child wouldn't even be in school right now if this was normal times, if I can call it that, um, you know, pre-pandemic or or whatever. So um, so in that standpoint, yeah, you're right. It's it's one of those, you know, short-term versus long-term um, or long-standing, I should say, you know, effects. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned kind of with the, the iPad or, um, you know, or the screen time, you know, we... Who knows? We might never know until our kids are, you know, we're long gone and, um, you know, our kids are, you know, 80 and we're learning about the effects of, you know, what COVID was doing when they were, you know, two months to two years old and what that, right. And what that means, you know, um, we might never know. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that you, you know, I always wonder just like, well, I mean, I'm sure any parent can appreciate that. I feel like they're, you'll always wonder like, Ooh, am I doing right by my child? And will this affect them negatively or positively in the future? I feel like that's just called being a parent, but, um, but it's the difference of, you know, just how the pandemic changed things, um, yeah. you know, immediately. And one can hope, I mean, if, if we can find, we can find a corner of optimism in our minds and maybe hope, you know, this is an event and events cause, consequences and so whether you know there will be there will be differences in us and our children and all of us as a result of the pandemic and then it's sort of up to us to classify them as positive or negative you know sure. like mother nature isn't going to say here are all the negative consequences that are going to come from this and so i wonder if maybe there will be some positive consequences you know maybe the greater exposure that your daughter has had to you and um, and her mom, you know, and, and your wife, uh, two very intelligent people with complementary skill sets. I mean, you're a your great checks musician, in the mail. and uh, <laughs> you're you're a great musician, and and uh, and a good speaker, and all these things. And so, what what about the exposure that she has had to to more of that? I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe is it is there any possibility that because she has has not had the physical ability to see her grandparents your parents that maybe she's talked to them more you know in in actual time and in number of times than maybe she otherwise would have hmm. who knows you know i'm not saying for like i'm you know i'm just i'm just sort of running with the idea that maybe you know uh in our in our rush to classify some of the negative things maybe there's a balance and maybe there are you know just as many other positive things that come from it it's 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 going to be hard to know um you know and and we like you rightly say may never know because we can't live the alternate reality where we do where we have one life with a pandemic and one life without a pandemic and see how it affected us and our children. I mean, during this pandemic, I left my job, started a new business. Would I have done that if it hadn't been for this? Uh, would we have started this podcast? You know, I mean, it's really changed our lives in so many different ways and it's hard to know which parts have been good and which parts have been bad. I know the, uh, the like, you know, uh, 15 extra pounds at least that I've gained during the pandemic, that's going to be a negative consequence. I'm going to chalk that one up to the negatives. But I mean, maybe there's some some just as big positives that come out of it. Who knows? So you're saying that there aren't different timelines? <laughs> right. So I'm going to roll a dice. 
Well, I think that's a good uh, spot to, uh, to, yeah. to keep it. Yeah. That's a community reference for those of you who, uh, who don't watch the show. Um, remedial chaos theory, I believe is the title of that episode. If I'm not wow, mistaken, remember, yeah. um, long story short, they roll a dice, which immediately creates six different timelines. Uh, one of which is called the darkest timeline, um, which if you've been listening to your previous episode is the name of a podcast that Ken Jong and Joel McHale did um, uh, to kind of, um, take up some time during COVID, explain COVID from a medical perspective as Ken Jung is a physician and much more. Um, but yeah, that's a community reference um, for evil Troy and evil Abed. Um, but I think that's a good spot to stop uh, for right now. So we'll take a quick break um, and we'll come back on the dad joke loading podcast. Um, I know Chris has a good um, recurring segment coming up after the break um, and then we'll close it out. So uh, just hang tight. We'll be right back again. This is the dad joke loading podcast. Welcome back to the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. I'm Chris, sitting here with Christian. Not literally, because it's a pandemic and we'd be in trouble for that. We're across a border talking via the magic of the internet, but I'm here virtually with my best friend Christian, talking to you about fatherhood, uh, growing up, and everything in between. So we're going to close things out with uh, hopefully a bit more of a uh, happier story. Uh, and this is one of our uh, dads from the vault. So this is a story of a um, uh, of a father who's who has a bit of an interesting story, or a father son duo with an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, a good role model for us all to follow. And this is about uh, throwing your child in the ocean uh, with a newly invented contraption um, being the entire way that they survive. Dad of the week. So this is <laughs> a person that we all know, which is Jacques Cousteau. Um, the very, very famous um, uh, oceanological scientist uh, who um, was a you know, pioneer of ocean studies and his son, Jean-Michel Cousteau. So one of the things that Jacques Cousteau did was uh, essentially invent um, or help to develop scuba gear. And so um, when Jean-Michel, Jacques Cousteau's son, was seven years old, um, he, in a way, tested it by putting it on his son and saying, go out there and have fun, kiddo, and shoving him off the side of the boat, and hey, he survived, and that's great. Um, you know, the, the extent to which that story is uh, completely scientifically accurate, I think we'll never know. Um, but Jean-Michel followed in his father's footsteps and uh, spoke very well of his father as a great role model, a great mentor, someone who was an advocate for the environment and the oceans many, many years be before it became fashionable to do so, and instilled a love in his child um, with that. And I think it's interesting because, you know, last week we talked about when is it appropriate and to what extent is it appropriate to sort of force our loves onto our kids, you know, is it, you know, surely it's okay to take them to a soccer game, but is it not okay to take them to a hundred in an effort to try to get them to love soccer, you know? And so this was a, this was a dad who uh, very much went more with option B there by testing scuba equipment on his seven-year-old child uh, and changing the world in doing so. And, uh, and I thought that was uh, an interesting story, a bit of a bit thought-provoking, and uh, of course, great to see the legacy 
of, uh, of a really great person like Jacques Cousteau uh, continue to live on. So that's our dad of the week from the vault, Jacques Cousteau, who tossed his uh, seven-year-old son overboard in an effort to test out and invent scuba gear. Um, so dad of the week. Uh, as I was researching this, Christian, I'm, I'm curious. I just, this isn't going to make it into one of our dad of the weeks in the future, but I'm, I'm curious as a music aficionado, if you happen to know this one, do you know why... Um, so Marvin Gaye, his last name is spelled G-A-Y-E, and his father was G-A-Y. Do you know why that was? I do not, actually. So they, were, they had such a poor relationship uh, and were so estranged that Marvin Gaye refused to be seen uh, as the son of his father and so added an E to the end of his name to distance himself. I did know that their um, their relationship was very poor, um, but uh, yeah, but I didn't necessarily yeah. know that. No, my question for you is, is that where the term sink or swim comes from? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Because it's just like, you know, when you're, yeah. you know, like we think about swimming lessons with little kids or whatever or anything, you're like, oh, jump in the deep end, sink or swim. You know, I, he wanted him to sink. Yeah. Breathe or don't breathe. Yeah. Yes. Like that was be, just, uh, uh, <laughs> that was, you know, I just, I'm just picturing, you know, Jacques Cousteau just, you know, as, as, uh, as his son just kind of like descends slowly, you know, towards the bottom that he's just like, and he's like happy that his son is sinking. Um, but he still sees air bubbles. I don't know. I just, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's just kind of, um, that's just kind of where I yeah. went right there. I, I just value the dedication. I mean, I'm definitely using that story in my back pocket. If like 10 years from now, my daughter's like, I don't want to take out the garbage. I could be like, well, you know, I could be like the greatest father of all time, a role model for everyone, Jacques Cousteau, and just shove you overboard with uh, a newly invented contraption on you to see if you uh, survive or not. My, my father and I would have ended up like Marvin Gaye and his father, because I have a pathologic fear of water um especially <laughs> large bodies of water and drowning really yeah no drowning idea. sounds like the most horrible thing like i would not wish it on anybody like burn me alive like whatever um but like yeah buried alive and drowning sound like the worst so i probably would have added a knee onto the end of my name um and not been Cousteau, really you know, I would have been Jean-Michel Cousteau with an E <laughs> at the end, yeah. you know, the... or an extra couple X's, um, you know, whatever, as the French like to do. Um, so I don't, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but do you, uh, what's, I mean, you've been on cruise ships and things before. I have. Is that, is that, a... they are floating fortresses. I can't really give you an answer for that. Um, but when I was, <laughs> right. but when I was like six or seven, I did almost drown in a swimming pool mm -hmm. story for another wow. day. Um, and, uh, and so since then, I've always had a, like a terrifying fear of, of drowning. I still love to go swimming. Don't get me wrong. Again, I don't really have a great answer for you. Um, but yeah, that sounds like the worst that I would 100% add an E onto the end of my name and disown my father if he did that to wow. me. Um, yeah, but, no uh, kidding. He did, Especially but he if did he not. knew that too. I mean, good, goodness gracious. Oh yeah, then he I, would, uh, yeah. That, there's a special place, uh, I feel like, in hell for those people <laughs> who would, who would know that would like still be like, well, here you go. When I was 13, my uncle dunked me in the salt water of the ocean to clean out a cut I had on my lip, and I didn't talk to him for three days. So, you know, I think... Uh, I th I so think if we if extrapolate, I... naturally, I would have disowned <laughs> yeah, exactly. my father for at least three decades. Yeah, based on yeah, that alone. Exactly. So. Exactly. That's funny. Well, speaking of that, I've known you. In, I'm sorry to interrupt. I've known you and been your best friend for ten years, and I did not know that about you. I mean, in fairness, how many of our stories and life experiences together involve large bodies of water? 
Mm, true, true, especially in mid Ontario. Yeah, not <laughs> not a lot yeah. actually. So, yeah. In 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 fairness, we haven't really been next to large bodies of water together, but um but anyway, as as it were, uh you know, I should, or as we say, on that note, that brings us to the end uh of another episode of the Dad Joke Loading podcast. We thank you so much for uh for hanging out with us, for listening. Um you know, for thinking alongside us, um, disagreeing with us, shouting at your computer or phone as you're listening, whatever it may be. Uh, we're just glad that you were along for the ride with us. Uh, before we close, just really quickly, a couple of thank yous, as we always do. Um, our producer, Ryan, who, again, without this, literally, we could not do. Um, Michael Spicer, um, who is uh, in charge of all of our audio. He uh, made the theme um, that you hear at the top and the bottom of the podcast, as well as all of our sound. Um, Vishal Murthy, um, who is vet cartoonist, who is involved in our image branding, logos, and that type of thing. And obviously, last but certainly not least, in fact, probably the most, um, would be um, our wives and daughters, without uh, without whom uh, this would not be possible, and for putting up us up, putting up with us for this long. So, as we mentioned, we are the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. Chris, always a pleasure. This was tons of fun. Always, my friend. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next week on the Dad Joke Loading Podcast. Take care. Everybody.